You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by the Michael Carlin novel Winning Streak, which follows the life of Patrick Trick Evans, a professional golfer who's just accomplished what no one in this sport has done since the 1930s, win all of golf's four majors in the same calendar year. He walks away from the spotlight, though, after the sudden death of his father. Golf reporter Casper Quinlan is eager to capture Trick's story and heads to his hometown of Chatham, Massachusetts, in her attempt to track down the reclusive golfer. She's still emotionally scarred from the car accident that claimed one of her legs years ago and has been unable to sustain a long-term romantic relationship as a result. Writer Robert McMullen is also a broken man. He hasn't been back to Chatham since the sudden death of his teenage daughter a couple decades ago, but he returns to his vacation home to grant his wife's dying wish. Winning Streak is the story of how these three lives intersect and how each comes to learn critical lessons in order to heal from the pain of loss in their lives. You can buy Winning Streak wherever books are sold online. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to share with you my interview with psychologist Gay Hendricks, who is a counselor, corporate trainer, and author of close to 40 books. When I asked Dr. Hendricks about his motivation for writing, he simply replied, I want to spend time writing books that help people lead better lives. And I thought to myself, wow, that's so noble. And it made me question why I write. And I often wonder if I write for other people's enjoyment or for my own. Now, the answer for me is probably somewhere in between. My friend Nick Capdiello, who at times can be complimentary towards my work, does accuse me of being somewhat self-indulgent in my writing. And as a case in point, in my recent novel, Motel California, I have these two characters who are twins, they're detectives, and they're always arguing about heavy metal music as a way of decompressing about the case that they're working on. You know, for example, they discuss who the better frontman of Van Halen is, and there's actually a surprise in there. Uh, Also, who the best Kiss lineup is, and whether or not Ozzy was better with Randy Rhodes or Zach Wilde on lead guitar. Now, those names might not mean anything to you, and they likely don't mean much to you, um, but this is the music that I grew up listening to and I still listen to on a regular basis. So the more I think about it, the more I realize that Nick actually has a point. You know, maybe some of my writing is a little bit self-indulgent. 
but I digress, and I'm honored uh, to have interviewed Dr. Hendricks for Uncorking a Story, if for no other reason than because he was a guest on Oprah multiple times during the 90s. And I'm now one step closer to living my dream of being a daytime talk show host. So please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Gay Hendricks without any commercial interruptions or station identifications. What, what drew you to the field of psychology? Well, I think if you... If you'd known the family I grew up in, you'd have to go in one of two directions. You'd either become a raving lunatic or a professional who studied such things. And so um, I grew up in one of those uh, Southern families where lots of people didn't speak to each other. And, oh, man, it was really a, a set of um, dramatic possibilities. So um, it was it was rich training ground for a therapist in training. Uh, but um, um all joking aside, I've always been fascinated with people. I've always been fascinated by how people interact with each other. Uh, when I was a little kid, I even remember hearing my grandmother and my mother talking about something honestly with each other that I just heard them lying about to other people. And it confused me a lot, you know, and I was always trying to figure out things like that. And so, um, I think that led me into it, but there was this one magic moment where I knew what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. And that was, I, I had first been very interested in creative writing, and I wanted to be a novelist. But I got a job teaching English and psychology, which I didn't know anything about at the time, at a boarding school for delinquent boys in New Hampshire. And... Um, they hired me, they said, because I was big. They later told me I was, I was a much bigger guy. I weigh about 180 pounds now, but in those days I weighed, I was pushing 300 pounds, you know, so I was monster sized. And um, so, um, but I was partly a, a custodian for these 105 delinquent boys and dorm monitor. And I, I had actually lived in an apartment there on the campus that came with the job. So anyway, it was kind of a intense situation one of my friends was taking a counseling class at the University of Colorado uh, about 20 minutes away. And I went over there to take a creative writing class, but I didn't gel with the class. And so I went over to tell him in his class that I was going to be heading home and wouldn't need a ride home. And so, um, but when I went into the class, the most amazing thing was happening. They kind of waved me in the class was set up in groups of about six or seven people, and there was maybe half a dozen or eight groups of six or seven people. So altogether, 50 or 60 people gathered together in these small groups. And uh, so he said, come on in. You might enjoy this. It was right at the beginning of the first semester, uh, first part of the semester. So things hadn't really, you know, they weren't... Uh, it hadn't gelled yet. Right. So anyway, I sat down in the group and the group was simply going around telling what people were up to in their lives. But the people who were listening were invited not to critique it or not to judge it or have thoughts about it or anything, but just to listen to it appreciatively. And I sat down and I had never had an instruction like that in my life. And I realized within two or three people that I was the most judgmental critical human being because I 
it just they were automatic yeah. and i realized i'd grown up in a family in a context where that's what people did with each other and so I thought that was the way you listened to people. You critiqued them, you insulted them, you, you, know, you judged them. And so just to be able to listen um, with no agenda, within an hour, I think I learned more than I'd ever learned about human beings in my life. Excuse me, I'm gonna take a sip of ice tea. And while you do that, I'll just reflect on it. You, um, so that was kind of your your aha moment of knowing kind of, is that like you knew what you wanted to do with your life at that point that you wanted to be a facilitator of that or yeah i wanted to be a facilitator of that because i felt the magic of that i felt suddenly changing before my very eyes you know i became a different person in that moment i became a person who could listen without judgment and that's not to say i always did it thereafter but you know the force of habit is very hard but over my lifetime I've become much better at just being able to receive people as they are rather than you know feeding them through my critical mechanisms and so that was a huge learning for me but here's the bigger thing remember i said i was close to 300 pounds well i'd say within a couple of weeks of that class i had a benign accident i did oh i i decided to enroll in that class and so it, with one whoop, I became a counseling student. And so I then had an accident, quote, where I slipped on the ice. I was out for a walk and I slipped on the ice and fell down on my back. And I didn't knock myself out, but it was a kind of a knocked me out of myself moment. I caught it an out of Hendrix experience. <laughs> and uh, I uh, was kind of jolted out of my normal ego mechanisms for a moment. And I had this most amazing vision of myself. I could see down through all the layers of myself. Like I could see how the layer of fat was covering up a layer of feeling. In other words, I, I overate when I should be just feeling my feelings. And I could see all these fears I had and all these sadnesses and all these angers I had down on the emotional level in me that I'd never really tapped into. And I think it was this counseling class that was having this huge effect on me. And so as I lay there on the ice, I also felt down through and I could feel that there was this other part of me that I now would call a pure consciousness or a transcendental consciousness, which was just consciousness without any content on it. It was just being. And I'd never felt anything like that in my life. And so there it was, I realized the secret of life kind of unfolded to me. And I realized that what we're all trying to do is get back in touch with that pure consciousness in whatever way we can. And so I made a vow as I was coming out of that kind of little two minute trance, and I was getting back on my feet. I made this vow to do whatever it took to be in that state of pure consciousness yeah. all the time. And over the next year, I lost a hundred pounds for one thing. And I got my life back, I think. That's a uh, that's, that's a very deep um, diet plan you must have had then. I mean, in terms of, I mean, not just like, uh, you know, what you're eating, but it's like, it's almost like a spiritual diet plan I'm sure you were on at the time. That's exactly the way it felt. In fact, uh, you've touched on something very important, which is that I started asking myself with every bite of food, 
or every type of food? Is this going to feed my spirit, this pure consciousness, or is this going to feed my old, bulky, overweight body? And I'd been a high school football player at 225 pounds, but then after I graduated from high school, I kept eating like I was still a football player, and pretty soon I was a 300 pounder. So it was a huge change in me to drop 100 pounds in a year, but the other magic happened was that, um, I almost hesitate to say this in public, but I might as well. You seem like a friendly uh, spirit, and I'm sure your listeners are too. But in the course of that year, my vision changed. My actual eyeballs changed somehow, where I was able to pass my driving test for the first time in my life at age 24. I'd always had to wear glasses when I was 16 and 20 and whenever I took my test. And so I think part of it had to do with letting myself learn to cry again, learning how to kind of let my eyes go a little bit. And what was underneath there was a lot of old sadness, but also what awakened was a new kind of vision where I could really see where I wanted to go in my life. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, th- we think of these things like sensation and perception um, as being purely physiological. Um, yeah, obviously, we and, and of course it is. I mean, we've got nerves, there's blood flow going to the eye. But there's also that sort of spiritual or emotional side to it um, where you can literally, if you change your way of thinking, start seeing the world in a different way. Um, it sounds like that, 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 uh, that was a realization you were coming to at the time. Yeah, I realized also in the course of that year that one thing I'd never really done was have a positive vision about what I wanted. And at first, it didn't even occur to do me uh, to do that on the relationship level. Uh, I was just busily repeating my old patterns from the past up into my 20s. I didn't meet my wife now of 39 years until I was uh, 34 years old. Mm -hmm. And so during my 20s, I made every relationship mistake that I think the self-help books are all full of things not to do in relationship. But um, I first focused on my career, I realized what I wanted above all was to be a professor of counseling psychology, just like in a program that I just come out of. And so I ended up going to Stanford for my doctorate and then getting a job at the University of Colorado in a counseling department, just as I wanted to do. And it had to do with creating a vision, I think, of where I wanted to go, which I'd never really seen out into the future before. And that became a really handy tool for me because I realized you're either going to spend your time grinding around about the past and trying to rearrange the past, or you're going to put forth a positive vision of where you want to go. And you're going to use that same energy that you've been grinding away on trying to change the past. You're going to use that energy to manifest what you want now into the future. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that because in my earlier 20s, when I was really, I studied psychology as an undergraduate. My whole goal at the time, you know, when I was 18 years old, I wanted to go on and get my, my PhD. And then I, uh, after graduating, I went to the University of Connecticut. Um, and after graduating there, I decided to work in advertising for a year. That was going to be a, that was my plan. I was going to work for a year. Then I was going to go to Columbia for my PhD. That was kind of how it was supposed to go. And of course, I never, I never went back for the PhD. I, I really fell in love with 
um, market research, which which I don't know how many people can actually say that uh, they fall in love with market research. But I was <laughs> I was this kid who who um, you know I loved psychology, I loved uh, uh, understanding human behavior, and I fell into this job in the advertising world where I was running focus groups. Um, which felt like little mini group therapy sessions, although instead of talking about what is bothering somebody about themselves, I was doing it for, you know, what they want to see in a new product or a new advertisement or something. And I kind of felt that, um, I felt that calling, but I, for, for a period of time, I was really questioning, you know, whether or not I had made the right decision. Should I have stayed in school? Should I have gotten the PhD? And it was really going through, um, I, I, I was doing a lot of reading at the time, and all these books were saying the same thing. You've got to envision what you want for yourself, and then it will sort of manifest itself versus doing the opposite of just focusing on your fear or focusing on your doubt, in which case more doubt and fear come into your life. And I've actually noticed that to be true from my own personal experience. Yeah, it really is. I think it's one of those... Uh undiscovered discovered secrets you know i certainly had never discovered it before i'd never read anything like a self-help book or wasn't even familiar with that section of the bookstore right now i have 40 books in that section of the bookstore <laughs> that's right that's right well just moving moving into your writing um because you know i i'm a fellow author and although i'm i'm primary i'm primarily i'm all um fiction um except for the stuff i do for my my marketing trade but you um, you've obviously have been a prolific writer, and, and I'm familiar with the, the sort of publisher parish paradigm in academia. Um, but what, what prompted you to write your first book? I'm, I'm always curious when I talk to authors, kind of, you know, that first baby. Um, yeah. what, what, what prompted you to, to bring that into the world, and what did you learn about yourself during that process? Well, it came out of a great conversation I had with a mentor of mine named Jim Fadiman at Stanford. He was a professor over in the design department, was a kind of a creative consultant to the design department, if I remember correctly. And so um, one day I had a conversation with him where he actually asked me, what do you want to do right now? Because I just had my brand new PhD and I was working there still at Stanford as a research psychologist. I hadn't gotten my job at the University of Colorado till the next year. And so I was uh, trying to figure out, he just really asked me point blank, what do you want to do right now? And I said, well, what I'd really like to do is I've been spending a lot of time volunteering in my daughter's first grade class. And I'd like to write a little book of relaxation and focusing activities that would be good for getting kids in transitions. Like I noticed it takes the teacher 10 minutes sometimes to get them settled down after uh, recess and ready for learning again. And when they have a test, I notice there's a lot of anxiety. So wouldn't it be great to have a little book of activities a teacher could use? And he said, that's a heck of an idea. He said, he, and he told me, he said he was a consultant for Prentice Hall Press and did scouting for them. He said, bring me a proposal about that book. And by the time I walked back to my little cubicle, that I uh, worked in at Stanford at the time. It was the era when offices had been eliminated in favor of little cubicles. It was that era. I don't know if it still exists in the uh, university <laughs> world or not, but the, uh, the tiny modern cubicle. Anyway, my tiny modern cubicle, I got back there. And by the time I got back there, 10 minutes walk away, I'd already figured out how to write the proposal. And I sat down and I, on a borrowed Selectric typewriter, I 
wrote about a three-page proposal, sent it in, got an $800 advance, which was at the time like being showered with manna from heaven. That <laughs> uh, was back in the days when $800, you know, I was living on, uh, I think my salary at Stanford at the time as a research psychologist was take home, pay about $580 a month, something like that. And so to have this extra $800 was fantastic. And um, so um, I wrote a little book called The Centering Book, and it was uh, became wildly popular among teachers when it first came out. And they were projecting it would sell five or 10,000 copies the first year. And instead, it sold something like 60,000 copies. And everybody was, when I went down the halls of Prentice Hall, they'd never had anything like that in the education department before. They were used to pumping out <laughs> you know, books that sold a dribble and a drabble. So um, I, I was greeted as a welcoming here, uh, and I sold them on the idea of writing the second centering book. And so right away, I created a second centering book and published that the next year. That was very popular also. And then I, they came back and asked me what I wanted to write, and I had a third and a fourth, fifth. So then I jumped over to, to Bantam, where we wrote Conscious Loving and got on Oprah and all that around 1990. And then I was with Bantam for a bunch of years. So I've had just about the most blessed publishing career. Oh, and then at the end of the whole thing, seven years ago, I decided to quit writing nonfiction for a while, and I created a line of detective novels. And so I, uh, as a kind of a challenge to myself, and they've become very popular, and I just sold them uh, to do a television deal with. Yeah, I wanted, so, to, uh, I wanted to ask you about those, because I know that in addition to all that sort of motivational stuff in the nonfiction, that, um, you know, this series has been really, really popular. And I have to tell you, I love the premise. I love the premise of, you know, a, a sort of a Himalayan monk who leaves, you know, the East to, to come in all places of Los Angeles, right? So I love that sort of, that dichotomy there between like two vastly different cultures um, and, and uh, you know, how he kind of gets involved in sort of police work. And um, I, I love the premise and, and I have to congratulate you on, on uh, getting that uh, deal to adapt it to the, um, the, uh, the screen. Um, and my, actually, I had a question for you about that, which is, um, are, are you going to be involved in the adaptation part of it? Or are you going to be one of the writers or, or screenwriters for that? Oh. And I see, I see that, I see that, 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 that sort of move you're doing there. I've tried to write screenplays. I have a, one of my mystery novels. Um, somebody asked me to, to take a stab at turning it into a screenplay and I'm stuck. It's, it's, it's a completely different way of thinking about writing. I don't know if you felt, yeah. feel the same way or not, but. Well, I've actually written a couple of screenplays for feature films, um, but writing a television series is a very precise craft. There's a very tight formula that it has to follow. And I don't want to work that hard at this stage of my career. And I, I'm doing it what I call the John Grisham way. When uh, Grisham was asked the same question, are you going to be involved in the movies? Um, he said, absolutely not. He said, the books are over there on the shelf. That's my job. And um, how they do it, I don't want anything to do with that. And so that's kind of my hands-off approach. I, I live 60 miles from Hollywood, but it's uh, I try to keep a thousand mile distance because <laughs> I used to actually have an office in 
Studio City when I was more involved in the movie business. I owned a movie business for about four years and then sold it to a public company. And so I was much more involved in the movie business than I am now. I'm very glad to be out of it. It's like, um, what do you call it? Uh, playing ball on running water. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know you're 60 miles away, but at the wrong time of day, that 60 miles may as well be four and a half hours. That's another thing, because sometimes I'd get down to my Studio City um, office in an hour, and sometimes I'd get down there in two and a half hours. You never could tell. Yeah. No, it's uh, it, unless you've experienced the traffic in L.A., in, in Southern California, you know, you, you, just seeing a picture of it on the news or hearing a story about it really doesn't do it justice. I know. That's why down here in Southern California, there's kind of a joke about every conversation you have has to involve a traffic reference. You know, somebody comes into the party and you say, oh, you don't say, hey, how's it going? You say, how'd you get over here tonight? And they say, oh, I came down the 101 and then cut over to the 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a Saturday Night Live skit in there. Um well, I mean, you, um, you, uh, your book, uh, the other book that I know you have a follow-up coming to, um, yeah, a follow-up coming to the big leap. But I wanted to just talk about the big leap for, for a minute because something in there also kind of hits hits home for me. I mean, I, I'm a guy. I run my own business. I mean, in addition to kind of being a writer, I mean, no one, very few people can actually make 100% of their income just on their writing alone these days. Um, so I do you do run a, a research business um, as well. Um, so, so I've got that going. It's been very successful. I've got three great kids. Um, they just turned 16, so now we're teaching them how to drive and all that. I've, I've had a, a woman I've been with for 25 years, um, believe it or not, you know, married for 19, but together for 25. So there's a lot of stability there, a lot of craziness, but a fair amount of stability. But I, I feel like I'm never satisfied. Um, and I think that you kind of hit on that in in the big leap. Um, but but why why am I never satisfied, Dr. Hendricks? <laughs> All right. Well, in the big leap, I identify some belief patterns and some feelings that go along with them that are all based in fear. Um, one of them is something that a lot of big-hearted people have, which is kind of a fear of outdoing other people. And it's usually based in childhood interactions with siblings, although it can come from other places too. But um, it leads to what I call the upper limit problem, where you get to a certain upper limit of success as you've been able to visualize it. And then suddenly you hit some kind of barrier out there that seems to squelch you back down to where you were before. And that upper limit problem is something that all successful people need to learn about and contend with. Another big fear is that uh, many of us feel that there's something fundamentally wrong with us inside or something fundamentally bad about us or flawed. We call it fun flawed, fundamentally flawed, where you feel uh, like somehow you don't deserve the success. And that can have, again, its origin in a whole bunch of different life stories, but it usually comes from early on in life. But what we found is that once you start understanding this and learning about these fears in yourself, you don't bump, bump up against that upper limit as much because you kind of see it coming, you know, and you, you, don't, uh, you don't engage in it. So 
many of us, when we get into the upper limit problem, we start a fight with somebody else, or we start criticizing ourselves, or we make ourselves ill, or we have an accident, something that pushes us back down to where we were before. And it's all based on limiting beliefs. And once you learn how to kind of eliminate the cloud cover of those limiting beliefs, you're free to see the world in a whole new way and to soar free up in that cloudless sky of your full potential. That, uh, it, it seems like um, that uh, might be something that's a little bit tricky to do, but certainly where, where guidance from a professional could, could really come in, come in handy. Yeah, well, the big leap, interestingly enough, has turned into be one of the unique, I guess, the unique book among my books in a certain way that some of our books, like with Conscious Loving, when we got the great blessing of a few visits on Oprah and with the Conscious Heart where we were on Oprah with it and everything, those got a huge boost. And then they gradually, the chart goes down, 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 down. <laughs> and then it kind of levels out, you yeah. know, not like, like now, 25 years after Conscious Loving came out, it probably sells 100 copies a week, something like that, 200 copies a week. Um, so it's kind of been flatlined for many years. And the big leap, though, when it came out, it was popular, but it keeps going up, 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 just by word of mouth, because I know the publisher isn't doing anything to publicize it. So it must be just word of mouth. But that's a wonderful, heartening thing to have for an author, because to have a book now that close to 10 years later, that does better every month than it did the month before, uh, that's kind of a dream come true because one thing is a, as an author, especially nonfiction author is I want to write books that help people live better lives. I mean, that's what it's all about. Cause if I find something that makes my life better, I want to tell the world about it. And I don't mind making money off that at the same time. It's a good deal. You know, I give you some useful information and I get 10 bucks out of it. Right. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, I decided early on that I wanted to not only be an author, but I didn't want to be a starving author. So I decided to write books that what I sell, uh, I said, I wanted to write books that sell tickets so that when I go there for the seminar, it inspires a bunch of people to come. And that's exactly how it uh, tended to work out. But now I'm in a different phase of my life after a million frequent flyer miles, I'm trying to do a little bit more things on, uh, on Zoom and Skype. Yeah, no, at, at, absolutely. And, and uh, as somebody who, who spent, you know, 10 years um, traveling all over the country every week, I find myself doing more and more interviews like this now, even for my for my business clients um, than, you know, running to Chicago for a couple of days. So I, uh, I, I definitely hear you on that. Um, I think in that book you mentioned um, or you referenced speaking to, to uh, close to a thousand, you know, who you call extraordinary achievers in business and the arts. Is anything that, that um, was most common amongst them or anything that really surprised you about talking to, to those people in business and the arts? One thing I learned was the power of completion. Because one thing that a lot of people at the top are good at, whether they know it or not, is not leaving things incomplete. You know, like, so before they leave, before you leave their office, if you say you're going to do something, they make sure they ask, by when? And what will happen if you don't? 
you know, those kind of questions that leave open so much indecision and unclarity and chaos in the world. And one thing I did um, was shadow, uh, when I used to do on-site corporate work up until about 1997 or eight, I did a lot of where I would go to Dell Computer and down around Austin and work with them for three days. And then I'd go to Boston and work with another group for three days. So I was on the road a lot. And one of the things I would do is shadow the leaders. Like I would just hang out with them for an hour or two and do whatever they were doing and kind of sit in the background and watch how they operated. And one thing I noticed right away is they were much better than, than their underlings at this issue that I call completion. So um, that really made an impact on me and to, to the point where I figure it largely in a lot of my books. And here you notice it too, like in relationship things with um, wife and family and people, loved ones you lived with, how important it is to make agreements and keep agreements and do the things you say you're going to do because those kinds of things create chaos in a family as much as they do in business and schools and everywhere else in the world. So uh, there's a great piece in a Stephen King novel and I can't remember which one it is now, but one of his characters is talking and he gives this guy a compliment. He says, you're one of the 3%. And the guy says, what do you mean? He says, well, as I go through life, I've figured out that there are only about 3% of people can be relied upon to do what they're going, what they say they're going to do or to not do what they say they're not going to do. And you're one of those 3%. And 97% are in some other process about that. And I remember that made a huge impression on me because that was exactly what I'd found out there in the halls of the corporate world, that the further you went down the organization, the, the more likely you were to see what I call the corporate salute, uh, which is not my fault. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, you never saw that at the top. That was one thing I really appreciate, especially I had the great gift of being around some amazing human beings like Michael Dell, uh, for example, you know, a mind like that doesn't come along very often. And to have a chance to just hang out with him and watch how he operated, as well as coaching him and doing things that I thought could be helpful to him. But boy, I'll tell you, I learned as much or more from him than I'm sure he ever did from me, just kind of watching how he could focus on things and keep the absolute crucial thing in mind at all times. And while people would go off on tangents, he would be there with the question or the idea that would just zoom. It would be like turning on a beam through the fog. And to, to be in that kind of presence of those kind of masters, it's like a Zen master in the business world. I've really gotten a lot out of that. Um, and especially I wanna zero in also, not only on completion, but just on focus too. The ability, like Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher said that all of our problems as human beings stem from the inability to sit in a room by ourselves for 10 minutes doing nothing. <laughs> which, which is only made worse now by the sort of the, the prevalence of, of mobile devices, because I look at my own kids and I'm guilty of it too, but you, no one can stay in the moment. 
it is very difficult for people to stay in the moment when they have this distraction in their pocket that so easily takes them out of the moment. So, and, and, and the spirit of it, I think, is to, to connect with other people. But you're, what I think people forget is that there are people in front of them who they still need to connect with that they're ignoring when they go to the, the buzzing device in their pocket. Yeah, yeah. I had this thing as sitting in a restaurant a while back while I was on a, a trip in my car. And um, there was a family of four sitting there at the table and each of them were plugged into their own devices, you know, so four people, eight earphones. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's sad. I was at a, a restaurant somewhere in California. I was doing some client work and and we, I was with a, a couple of colleagues, and next to us was clearly a, a date, and probably an early, early on date. Um, young man, young woman, you know, she was very attractive, and he probably wasn't bad looking either. But the two of them didn't even look at each other for most of the time. They were on their phones. And I'm like, I wanted to, to walk up to the guy and, like, slap him. Because, and again, this is me being judgmental, maybe, but I'm like, here you are sitting, trying to get to know somebody who, you know, obviously it's, it, was, it was very clear that it was early on in whatever relationship that they were trying to establish, and the two of them weren't even talking to each other. And it just, it drives me, it's, we have a rule in our, in our family, no devices at the table just for that. Like, at our family dinner table, when we have a family dinner, there are no devices, and that goes for mom and dad also. Yeah, well, I, I'm um, heartened to hear that it's a disease in your part of the country, too, because it's kind of a a joke down here in Southern California, especially down in LA, that where people are always checking their phones to see if uh, their agent called, uh, <laughs> see if there's a message from their agent every 10 seconds or so. Um, well, that, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. I remember, uh, it, but even in New York, it's like, I, I don't understand how people don't get hit by more cars because they're not even, uh, now you're much more strict about jaywalking in, in Southern California. And I know that personally, because I got a $200 ticket for walking in a crosswalk, but I didn't have the walk signal. So somebody actually took their time to give me a $200 ticket for that. But You I must mean, have been somewhere near Beverly Hills for that I, to happen. I was actually near the, uh, um, the Fine Arts Building um, in downtown L.A. Uh -huh. Meanwhile, there was a homeless man defecating three corners <laughs> away. But I get the ticket for walking across the street. But the, I mean, the point is, I mean, you know, people are, are blinded by these devices. I don't understand how more of them aren't, uh, you know, winning a Darwin Award for uh, <laughs> poor evolution by, by, by getting hit by a car. Well, I almost did some major damage a while back to the movie industry because I was uh, threading my way through one of the kind of back streets over where there's a lot of recording studios in L.A. And uh, Mike Myers walked in front of my car carrying a big thing with like six cups of coffee balanced in here and he was focusing so much on uh and i uh fortunately got to a halt i was going only about 12 miles an hour at the time but i gave him a thumbs up you know and he gave me a nod of gratitude like thank <laughs> you for not running me over now the most amazing part of that story is mike myers actually carrying his own coffee 
carrying it for somebody else. For somebody too, else, I, yeah. My picture is he was carrying it back for the people who were working in the studio. And that was my one and only contact with Mike Myers. So I claim no other knowledge of anything about him. Well, you know, hopefully it was uh, perhaps during the recording or the, the filming of The Love Guru, which was not, uh, by all accounts, one of the better movies he had uh, chosen to make. I haven't seen that one. Well, you're not missing much. Wayne, stick with Wayne's World and uh, and, and the classics. Um, but I actually yeah, just just to kind of wrap up here. Um, one of the things that that I know your work focuses on is, um, you know, not, not just achieving outside in the outside world, but also achieving inside the home and and kind of as the, as the family unit, which actually I would say most likely pays some pretty strong dividends for the next generation, you know, for our kids. Um, why, why is, why was that so important for you to, to write about and focus on in your work? Well, I think it's because I'm a classic example of a wounded healer in the sense that I took a lot of things. I never saw any healthy relationships when I was growing up. So I put a priority on creating one once I kind of began to, awaken uh, in my early 30s. And like I said, I spent a lot of my 20s just blindly going about unconsciously repeating patterns. And so um, fortunately, I had a wake up moment in uh, when I was, well, it was December 1979, where I had this vision of what I really wanted in a close relationship. And it was three things. I wanted to be with a woman who was absolutely honest so that we could be absolutely honest with each other, never any artifice. Number two, I wanted to be with a woman who was willing to take responsibility for things that came up rather than going for the victim position because I just started doing that myself. I quit being the victim and started taking responsibility and claiming, hmm, here's why I created that in my life. And so I wanted somebody who was getting good at doing that too. And the third thing is I wanted somebody that was really committed to their creative process. Um, and uh, the reason is because I go in a room for a couple hours a day by myself and write, and I want to be with somebody who really respects and honors and has that kind of thing going, whether it's writing a symphony or making a soup or whatever it is that they've got something they're passionately engaged with. So those are my three big requirements. And so I kind of made this prayer to the universe where I said, what I wanted, and then I put a clincher on it. And I said, if it's not in the cards for me to have something like that, I'm willing to be alone, but I promise you I'll never settle for less. I kind of cracked a whip on the universe and said, this is what I want and I'll never settle for less. So a month later, I walk into a room and there's this amazing looking human being and I find out her name is Kathleen. Now we call her Katie. But uh, I persuaded her to move to Colorado with me, and uh, the rest is three or four books about it and uh, lots of trips around the world. As a matter of fact, right now, she's just beginning a relationship seminar that she's teaching over in uh, near Munich, Germany. That's fantastic. Sounds like uh, I, when you were talking and, and sharing that story about how you guys met, the, the song from South Pacific, Some Enchanted Evening, came into my head for some reason. <laughs> Uh, that goes back to my days in the theater. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about your perspective on is uh, uh, equality and equality in relationships and whether or not um, like 50-50 total equality should be the goal or if you have another perspective on, on what equality means. Yes, uh, I do. Um, 
first of all, equality needs to start with that move of being willing to claim responsibility for things that are going on. Because if you have one person who's willing to do that and another person who really only wants to be the victim, to plead the victim position, then that pattern keeps going around. Usually what happens is relationship problems are perpetuated by both people rushing for the victim position and trying to claim to be the victim. And then each one tries to out victim the other one. And so there's no way out of that except by each person taking responsibility for it and say, okay, here's why I created that in my life. Here's why I created that issue with you. And if both people are willing to do that, then problems are cleared up very quickly. But you and I both know a lot of times people are not really willing to do that. And so my grandparents, for example, who are having the same victim argument, they were married for 63 years. And I say they spent 59 of those years arguing with each other <laughs> uh, based on what I saw. And so, you know, it's possible to keep those patterns going for years and years and years. And so my wife and I figured out a way to stop that, which is when st stuff come up, comes up, you just tell the truth about it and take responsibility for it and clear it up. And as a result, we haven't had an argument this century. Well, that's fantastic. And I can't say the same. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I happen to know that because we moved into this particular house where my home office is in um, just in the new century. And so uh, I know we haven't had a, any kind of conflict since we've been here in this house. And I can sort of vaguely remember some back in the 90s, but by the, we got together in 1980. So by 1990 or so, when we started going out on Oprah and doing those kind of things, we pretty much got our act together as far as both of us taking responsibility and being honest and having a shared vision on where we wanted to go. Um, but it did take us a number of years to get those kind of things worked out. So even if you're focusing on it 28 hours a day, it's, it's a challenge sometimes to do it. Right. It, it actually echoes, you know, something that you were talking about when you were when you were reflecting on your, your Michael Dell days and, and the top executives, you know, people who were open to taking responsibility for things versus pointing the finger at others. So it seems to kind of work in the boardroom as well as uh, I don't want to say the bedroom, but inside the home. It works inside the home. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It works all, I say the bedroom and the boardroom, because I used to go into companies and try to straighten out conflicts where they'd be stuck for a few days. And uh, I always compared myself to uh, one of those parachute guys that, you know, parachute behind enemy lions and land. Uh, and uh, so I would get parachuted into some place where three members that owned all the stock was, were trying to figure out something that they couldn't figure out. And it would usually never be business related. It would always be something on the emotional level. But um, it takes a lot of work sometimes to get to peel off those layers and get down to what's real. Absolutely. So as we, as we wrap up here, uh, Dr. Hendricks, you know, thinking about um, that, that time in your life, you know, pre-30s, you know, before you had your your great awakening, you know, before you, um, you know, had, had a little bit more clarity and, and dare I say purpose in your life. If you could write a letter to that younger self, giving, giving that person advice, you know, let's say that time travel were possible and we were able to do this. Um, what, what are some of the things you would tell your younger self? What would some of the, the, the things that, you know, you today would write and reassure your younger self about, um, to kind of make them know that things are going to be okay. 
Yes, I would say one breath at a time, focus on telling the truth, feeling your feelings, and loving as much as you can from wherever you happen to be, because love is the only thing that's big enough to contain its opposite. You can love yourself in moments you're hating yourself. You can get your love bigger than that hate. And so sometimes it's the only thing that really can get us through situations. And I, it took me a long time to learn that, but I would uh, tell my young, younger self that. And also to know that as you keep doing that, life keeps leading you into greater and greater positive possibilities. And then you just keep claiming those as your own and soaring as high as you want to go. Well, I think that's a, a great sentiment to end this uh, conversation on. It, it's actually uh, reminds me on the latest U2 album. I don't know if you're a fan. I'm kind of a fanatic um, <laughs> to, to the point. But one of the songs is uh, Love is Bigger Than Anything in Its Way. That's the, the title of the song. And mm -hmm. I think that's uh, that's kind of what you just uh, may have been what you just said. I'm paraphrasing, of course. That sounds like they're on the right track. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much for the time you spent with me uh, this morning, Dr. Hendricks, and I wish you a great rest of your day. All right. Blessings to you. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Well, there you have it, my interview with Dr. Gay Hendricks. If you want to learn more about Dr. Hendricks, feel free to visit Hendricks.com. And of course, if you want to learn more about me and my writing, please visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O, not an I. And if you liked what you heard here, please consider telling a friend. We love it when you tell people about all the great stuff you hear on Uncorking a Story. So for Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening and until next time. <laughs>